So, uh, I have a question that says, let's see. Uh, where are we here? Oh, here we are. Uh, if our irascible appetite or passions are affective responses, are things we, we shun or desire, despair, fear, shun, that is, desire, hope, courage, etc. Uh, why can't patience be the opposite of anger? And that's the point of the question here, that there is an opposite for all of the other passions, as in hope and despair, courage and fear. Why is there not an opposite for anger? And so the writer says, why can't patience be the opposite of anger? You mentioned patience at the very end of your talk, carrying the cross. Well, uh, actually, it's a good question, but there's a very uh, simple answer, really. Because patience is not a passion. It's not a passion. And to be the opposite of a passion as such as anger it would have to be a passion in its own right, and it's not. Remember, these, these passions, despair, fear, anger, hope, courage, they erupt. We're talking about the sensible appetite. Now, this is regarding material, worldly things, okay? like even an animal might have. Uh, coming from the cognitive powers even of a, an animal with what they call the sensitive or sensible soul with regard to things around it in the world. <coughs> so these are not uh, supernatural things that erupt from the soul under the influence of grace. These are just things that we share with the animals, actually, with regard to the things we know about the material things of this world. And so uh, we're talking about things that erupt from the affective, the appetites of the sensible cognitive faculties, as we talked about briefly. And uh, anger uh, is one of those uh, passions that erupt uh, from the affective, the appetites. Um, and patience is not. Patience is a virtue, so uh, that's something that actually has to come from the soul, not a sensible appetite. That's why they really, uh, you see, the opposite, if we took it, look at anger as a kind of fury against a present grave evil, then the opposite passion would be a kind of uh, would have to conserve a present great good. But in that case, the opposite of anger would be what we experience effectively from a, a present great good that we actually have, have uh, in our possession. For that, you might have to go back to joy. You might have to say, well, okay, joy was the first of the concupiscible appetites, the positive one, and joy would seem to involve enjoyment of a present great good. So, yeah, that would seem to be the opposite of anger. So here you start with joy, you go through the concupiscible appetites, you go through the irascible appetites, you get to anger, there's no opposite, and then you might refer back to joy at the beginning again. You see what I mean? It's just kind of interesting. It's kind of curious how it works. It's almost like we're kind of circular in our feelings here. <clears throat> but that's why it, uh, patience is not an appetite.
What books do you, is not a passion, I should say. What books do you suggest to help us develop a fear of final judgment? Well, if anybody's ever read the apocalypse, I tend to think that would serve the purpose. Um, or uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori's Preparation for Death. That's pretty good. I'd say that's probably in second place. And uh, so I, I would recommend both of those. Uh, Father, can you give us some tips on praying the rosary? I'm going to save this actually for the, uh, the end of the questions because it's going to be like a segue to what comes next here. Can a person who states they are humble be humble? Well, what if somebody were to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am meek and humble of heart. Could that person be humble? Who said that? <laughs> our Lord said that, right? So I think the answer would have to be yes, right? That our Lord said, learn from me because I am meek and humble of heart. I would say, well, yeah. A person who says they are humble can be humble. And now our Lord can say that. The Son of God can say that. Could you say that? Could I say that? That's another question. You know? We're talking about how humble I am, right? I'm very proud of my ability. Um, so actually, uh, I suppose it's it's possible someone could say that and actually be humble. But you know, he'd have to say it for a reason. <clears throat> he'd have to say it for some good reason, some humble reason, right? <clears throat> if someone were to say to you, why don't you speak up for yourself? Why don't you stand up for yourself or whatever? And the person says, well, I'm not trying to be humble. Or I'm, I'm just being humble about this. <clears throat> Maybe they could say it genuinely that I'm trying to set a good example. Right? It's quite possible. But anyway, let me just continue. Uh, we'll, you can fill out another card, okay? There's always a follow-up. There will always be a follow-up. <laughs> just uh, there are more cards here, so go ahead and, and uh, use them. Um, and okay, here's, uh, and what is honor? <clears throat> oh, that's a very good question. Well, uh, I guess to answer that question, you'd have to, you'd have to think, what makes one honorable? Uh, can, is one honorable who's hardworking but dishonest? No, they wouldn't be honorable. Is one honorable who is honest but lazy? You'd say, well, no, they wouldn't be honorable either. Is somebody honorable who, let's say, is meticulous about keeping his promises, but at the same time, he's very impatient. It's really, flies off the handle, gets angry and irritated very often. Well, you'd say, well, that's not very honorable. And so what I'm getting at is honor seems to be like having the complexes of virtues. It seems to sort of having the integrity. That's the word that comes to mind with honor is integrity. And so being honorable seems to be the kind of person who has this full complement of virtues, not just one or the other virtue. And honor is not just one virtue. It seems to be like a suite of virtues. At least that's, it seems that way to me anyway. I didn't look up the, the definition, and I'm not sure if I did look up a Merriam-Webster or even the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm not sure I would agree with the definitions they would give there. But I think it would be... Uh, it would be correct to say that honor 
is uh, a matter of possessing and practicing the entire um, uh, collection of the virtues. Um, and this, this is what I think would make one honorable. And if, if one failed in one of the primary virtues, let's say, of uh, even, even if you were to take the cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, from which all the other virtues flow, I mean, purity and modesty, uh, honesty, so on, all the other virtues flow from these four cardinal virtues. I think if you had said, if anybody lacked one of those, they wouldn't be honorable. So it just seems to me that you need them all to be truly honorable. Now there's the question, do the angels get confirmed to become soldiers of Christ? Well, the answer we know, because angels can't receive sacraments, sacraments for us. There are no sacraments for angels. And um, do angels get confirmed to become soldiers of Christ? Why? Well, the answer is no, because again, angels don't receive sacraments. Sacraments always involve matter and form. There's no matter in angels. You can't baptize an angel by pouring water over its soul. You know? uh, but it's impossible. Well, angels don't have souls. They have spirits. We have souls because our spirits are meant to be united with matter. So we call them souls. <clears throat> angel spirits are not designed by God to be united with matter. Matter uh, is always an essential part of a sacrament. And besides, angels didn't need to be redeemed. The angels in heaven didn't need to be redeemed anyway. Sacraments are for the sanctification of the human soul, a fallen human soul, uh, fallen in sin. The angels who are faithful to God are in heaven rejoicing now. The angels who betrayed God and defied him are now in hell. There's no redemption for them. There's no redemption for a sinful angel. Why? Because the angel knew what he was doing and you couldn't introduce any new factor that would change his mind. That's how powerful the angelic intellect is. It locks the angel in. He can't change his mind, so he can't repent. There's no redemption. Sacraments are to redeem. Um, angels are pure spirits created holy and they do not die. And that is true. That is exactly right. Uh, because their spirits are simple substances, they cannot disintegrate like our bodies do, and they remain forever. They're not eternal because they had a beginning. What's eternal had no beginning and has no end. The angels' spirits are everlasting, though, <clears throat> because once they were created, they exist forever. Now, here's a question here. I have read that uh, one main difference between animals and humans is awareness. Animals are awake. They're woke. But not aware. Humans have this potential for awareness. LOL. Potential, that is. That animals cannot and do not have. True. Can you almost apply the term awareness to the Internal senses, that is the common sense, imaginative sense, estimative sense, memorative sense, material sense, they're all material senses. Um, well, actually, a couple of questions here. One of them, uh, 
no, it's not just a matter of awareness. What makes an animal aware is that it has a sensitive soul. So it actually has senses which enable it to interact with, interact with the world. To the extent that an animal can see or hear and so on, even to the effect, in a sense that a paramecium might have you know, some power to sense what's around it and react to it, um, it has, quote-unquote, awareness to that extent, whatever it is. Take a dog or a cat, you know, dogs or a cat, their senses are very refined. Sense of sight with a dog, the sense of smell. Uh, to us, these seem almost supernatural because of what they can sense that you and I can't. These are the things that enable them to be aware of the world around them. The question is not so much being aware of the world around us. We I mean, the question is a matter of being aware of themselves, uh, having self-consciousness. Are they aware of themselves? Well, yes, they have to be. They also have the internal senses. Animals also have the uh, common sense so that what they can taste is they're aware. It's what they see and what they smell. It's the same thing. It ties them all together, all the sensations. Uh, animals also have the imaginative sense in the sense that they can actually dream. We've seen dogs dream. Heaven knows. Estimative sense? Oh, yeah. Animals know how most instinctively what's a threat to them. And they run from it. Even baby animals, they, they know. A baby elephant knows that an approaching lion is a threat. Baby lamb knows that an approaching wolf is a threat. Estimative sense. Um, memorative sense. But this, the animals too. I mean, cats and dogs uh, know what experiences they've had. Even when the wolf is not around, uh, they still have in their mind a memory of what a wolf is, what a wolf looks like. If uh, uh, a dog gets uh, burned by something, uh, the dog uh, keeps that memory, and uh, it, it can actually imagine these things, as it were, in its memory and draw it up into its imagination. These are all material senses that animal life needs to survive in this world. So to that extent, they are aware. The question is, are they aware of themselves? And to what extent are they aware of their identity? Do they have an identity? Um, that's a question that uh, people argue about. Nowadays, they think if they can teach an ape to point at a banana because he wants a banana, they think, oh, look, apes are like people. But, you know, we say that apes, uh, even our closest ancestors, <laughs> of course, the great apes, <clears throat> they want to think th us to think that they are our closest relatives on the tree of life. Um, they should be able to do whatever a child should do, could do, uh, before the child reaches the age of reason. So you think about what can a child do before it reaches the age of reason? You think, well, yeah, an animal like an ape or a chimpanzee, they don't have souls, they can't reach the age of reason. <clears throat> but there are things that they can do in interacting with the world. And you'd say, well, I, I would expect that if uh, my four-year-old child could do this, I would expect that you could teach a chimpanzee to do the same thing. When my, when my child reaches the age of reason, though, I expect my child to do things that the chimp and the ape could never do. Because now the child has the use of a faculty of the soul, of the uh, immortal soul. And... Uh, Developing that one of the one of the faculties, uh, well, the intellectual faculty of the child develop when the child reaches the age of reason is the faculty of conscience. Conscience is defined as the judgment of the practical reason. 
discerning the rightness or wrongness, goodness or badness of an action to be performed here and now. Something that confronts the human being and to choose between right and wrong. And it's a matter of intelligence, determining the rightness or wrongness of an action. It's a judgment, it's a judgment in philosophy that has a very specific meaning of the practical reason. This is good, this is bad. Reason because it sees something actually immaterial, goodness or badness. It judges the morality of an act. And uh, it's a practical judgment because it involves action. Decides what is to be done or not to be done. And so the reason I'm saying all of this is because it has something to do with the answer. And that is, as human beings are not mere animals, we also have self-awareness. They have self-awareness. If they didn't, they couldn't really protect themselves or try to uh, uh, seek what served them and avoid what offended them or hurt them. But you see, with us now, we surpass the senses. We think beyond sensible things. We think beyond material things. In fact, what is just absolute um, fundamental to, to animals for us is not. Because our lives, our lives are all measured in terms of spiritual things. We think necessarily in terms of things that you cannot measure, you can't touch. There's no way you can find a pound of justice, you can't measure a yard of mercy, you can't get a gallon of honesty. These are, these are spiritual things. But they are very real. They are so real. A human being will live and die for these things. For what they believe is right. For what they believe is just. Even to the point of experiencing all manner of deprivations of the senses, they'll suffer imprisonment, suffer torture, and even suffer death for what they consider to be right. A matter of justice, mercy, purity. These are the, the, whoop and the, the whoop and the warp of our lives. This is the very substance of our thought. That's where human thought goes. That's what we're aware of. We're not just aware of the food on the plate in front of us, and if we, <clears throat> if we find that the object of our meditation, we're in serious trouble. So uh, this takes me to the last question I have here right now. And this is kind of a, a segue, as I say, into where I wanted to go tonight. I don't want to go too long, though. It's already... <clears throat> Father, can you give us some tips on praying the rosary more as a meditation as opposed to doing it as a 20-minute obligation every day? And getting it done, because praying the rosary is something we are supposed to do. Actually, uh, I, I have this here to remind me to tell you, this is on another totally separate point, okay? So let's just take a little hiatus here, press the pause button for the conference. You'll see me in the chapel with the cell phone. I'm not checking my text messages. Um, the entire divine office is on the uh, online in Latin and in English. 
Some of you know that. Some of you are probably already praying it. And so I found that it's much easier for me to pray the divine office using this device because it's backlit and I can enlarge the print at will. And in my poor eyesight, it really helps. Not only in the chapel, but on airplanes, like when the overhead light doesn't work, <laughs> which is not infrequent, infrequent, it's so much easier to pray the divine office there. <clears throat> uh, so please don't be scandalized, okay? I'm, I'm not checking investments or anything like that. <clears throat> um, praying, just praying the divine office. Now, with regard to this question of praying the rosary, uh, first of all, I would suggest uh, starting out by asking God for divine light. Ask God for divine illumination. Ask him for enlightenment. When you're going to meditate on the mysteries of the rosary, you should make a momentary request of Almighty God to enlighten your mind. But remember, prayer is not only enlightening the mind, it's also affecting the, affecting the affections. It also is meant to bring you to love what you know in prayer. And so what you're asking for, you're asking God to help you pray and to meditate by asking God to enlighten your mind and to inflame your will. Enlighten your mind with knowledge of God and the mysteries, the mysteries of the rosary, as you pray them, and also to uh, fill you with a wonderment and a, a joy and a and a, thank, a thankfulness for the rosary as a prelude, as a platform for making an act of thanksgiving to God for these things. Now they also suggest that when you want to fix your mind to some of the rosary mysteries one or the other mystery of the rosary, you can kind of bring your imagination to play by attaching in your own mind some scene, some vision, interior vision to a mystery. If you're seeing our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, the first sorrowful mystery, you might just adopt as a standard practice that when you're praying that mystery of the rosary, you might adopt the a scene that is you automatically bring up in your mind in your imagination and uh, you put yourself there you put yourself there almost if you want to sort of like a big back backdrop on a stage but better yet if you can imagine yourself to be present there in the garden of gethsemane and imagine the scene and imagine uh, the apostles sleeping far off and imagine the moonlight and imagine the uh, the, the moonlight coming through the trees, uh, the olive trees, but there, center in your mind, center in your vision is our Lord, prostrate on the ground, surrounded by a pool of blood that he's sweating. And you could actually make that your standard go-to uh, image in your mind when you go to pray that mystery of the rosary, the, the uh, agony in the garden. So you could make that... Uh, something it takes a bit of an effort perhaps to uh, compose that scene in your mind but once you do it it becomes second nature to you that that's what you see when you hear even if you hear someone speak of the the agony in the garden that's what comes into your mind automatically you see it in your mind in your imagination that would help pray help you focus or uh, even a word even a word for example if you are praying the uh, agony in the garden, 
praying the first sorrowful mystery, and you think of what our Lord said there, Father, Father, he addresses the Father. And you know what he said? He said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He said, Father, if it is possible, let this, let this chalice pass from me, chalice of suffering. Now, maybe you want to meditate on that. Maybe when you come to the first sorrowful mystery, that's what comes to your mind. But just make it uh, so regular uh, that it becomes like second nature to you, automatic, that your, your imagination immediately snaps to attention and it's at your service, the service of your meditation. It's not the enemy now. It's your ally in meditating. Now, these things uh, are things you can do to bring into line these, even the sensible appetites. We talked about the, the cognitive powers of the, the, the soul, the cognitive powers of the body, the cognitive power of the soul is the intellect. The sensible cognitive powers involving what you know of the world around you, I mean, we're talking about the external senses and the internal senses, and you want to get the... You can, you can kind of shut out other visions, you can shut out other feelings, you can shut out other smells, other hearing. You can go and find your own garden to go into. You want to go into your own garden so you can meditate, right? Get away from the clamor of the world. So you need kind of a garden to go into to meditate anyway. So you're shutting out all the external senses that would get in the way the, the banging of pots and the screeching of tires, the honking of horns and all that. Okay, you're getting away from all that. But your internal senses, you can't get away from them. So you have to enlist them. We, remember, our Lord had those internal senses too. We talked about the passions that were involved with them and how they were all crucified with him and they all suffered with him. But all of those internal senses of our Lord were there united to his holy will and everything he suffered through all of those internal senses, everything he suffered was part of his passion. These were the internal sufferings of Christ <clears throat> that were crucified for us and suffered for us. And that was the worst of the passions. The worst of the passion that our Lord had to endure was not the nails to the hands or the, or the thorns in the head. It was what was done to his spirit, what was done to his soul, what was even done to the powers of uh, not only the powers, the internal powers of the body, his imagination, and so everything was enlisted to suffer. He suffered terrible anguish. This was the, the by far the, the greater part of our Lord's passion, the greater part of his suffering. But now, you see, our, our Lord has made it so that we can, we, can, we can marshal those very same things to serve us in prayer. So um, they can help us to, to uh, pray the rosary. We can actually uh, summon our uh, sensible memory to draw together this image and, and feed our uh, memorative, our sense, our sense memory with the sense imagination. Our sense imagination can help us to piece together this kind of scenario here that will actually help us to pray. And that's what we need to do, exactly. Enlist the help of these things, which are ordinarily our great enemies. Uh, Father, similarly asked if uh, it's hard to pray. Well, it is. It's hard to pray in the sense that it's hard to keep our attention focused. Keep our attention focused. 
And that's the first step, you know, to raise your mind to God. And it's hard to do that for us because our minds are so unruly. But um, by the power of uh, grace and practice, we can actually enlist the powers that ordinarily would war against the Spirit into serving the Spirit. But this brings me to another point here. And that is, let's take that, let's take that example of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because I asked a question earlier, and the question was, can we actually pray with Jesus Christ? Can we pray with his sacred heart? And I mentioned, well, it would seem that we, we wouldn't, because we have the example of our Lord. When, when we asked him to teach us to pray, he gave us the Our Father, which was not his prayer, it's our prayer. And um, also, when our Lord went to pray, he would go up into the mountains, and the apostles would be kind of left left behind as he went off alone to pray to the Father. So it seems that our Lord, in a sense, uh, maybe excluded us uh, somewhat, excluded the apostles from his prayer. But we see something happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is really, uh, really instructive to us today. And uh, we see our Lord, the, our Lord's example again, going to pray, going into a garden. Um, you might say that our Lord's passion began in a garden. And I'm not talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. It's almost as though our Lord's passion began when Eve reached for that fruit, with the intention of defying God. The book of Genesis says she ate it and she took it to her husband and he also ate of it. That brief phrase, we see in a sense the beginning of the passion of the Redeemer. And now the Redeemer was needed. And you might say his mission was immediately assigned. Um... So our Lord's passion began in the garden, began in the Garden of Eden, in principle, I'd say. And it began um, even as he approached the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Even as he stood there about to enter the garden, our Lord turned to his apostles and he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Well, there you have, you see, there you have the anguish of our Lord and those internal powers of the internal powers they had as man, as man, were being crucified already, being tormented already, so much so that we take him literally, that they could well have been lethal. They could have killed him. He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't allow them. He wouldn't allow himself to die. It would have been so easy, right? But he meant what he said when he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Sorrow kills, you know. Our Lord knew that sorrow. Even before, even before he sweat, he shed the first drop of blood in the garden. Sorrow was already taking hold of him. So when we talked about the passion of Christ, that's what I mean by saying we have to talk about the passions of Christ. Because they were crucified too. They were the first to be attacked by the grief of sin. And when our Lord entered the garden, we see him suffering there terribly. 
before we struck him with anything, his soul was already his, so sorrowful that his body was, as it were, wrung out. It was wrung out with grief. And, you know, long, long before God had assigned a, an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Well, God sent an angel into the Garden of Gethsemane, too. But that angel was there to console our Lord. Imagine the Son of God needing to be consoled by one of his own creatures. Well, actually, yes, you can imagine that, can't you? You can imagine that because you see what happened to our Lord there in that Garden of Gethsemane because he, he would get up and he would go to his apostles, Peter, James, and John. He had taken deeper into the garden with him and then gone off a bit from them. Not so far, perhaps, that they couldn't see him. They were laden with grief, perhaps because they saw the grief that gripped him. But again, our Lord went to them and he asked them, can you not watch with me? Can you not watch with me? Now, was that exceptional? Our Lord had many times gone to pray. He had taken them with him. They had slept. Tonight, they slept too. But tonight, he went to them and he asked them to stay awake and watch with him. And when I say that that's very instructive for us, because I think it helps to answer the question, can we pray with Jesus? And it answers the doubts we would have, say, well, in fact, our Lord Jesus Christ did, he did lead the prayers with the apostles when they were blessing the food, as he did at the Last Supper, and every time they ate, he, he led those prayers for them. And uh, yes, he did teach them how to pray as a group. And uh, yes, he did take them into the gardens and the mountains with him when he went to pray. But we don't have records that they were actually saying the prayers with him. So the question arises, well, can we actually pray with the Sacred Heart? I think we have the answer in Gethsemane, where our Lord actually went to the apostles and in a sense pleaded with them. That He almost begged them to pray with him. He almost begged them to watch and pray with him that night. So... Um, if the question comes up, can we pray in union with the Sacred Heart? Can we unite our prayers with His? I think now the answer is absolutely, oh yes. Not only can we, we have to, we must. Um, this is precisely what He was begging us to do in His apostles, Peter and Paul. To unite our prayers with His. That's so much to Him, how much it would have meant with him, to Him then and how much it would mean to him now, certainly. In fact, I would say that's the whole point of mental prayer, to do exactly that, to unite our prayers with his own prayer. So that brings us to the question of mental prayer. This is kind of the meat and potatoes of the retreat, because this is where we're going. This is the practical. This is where the rubber meets the road, as they say, um, and so on. The mental prayer as to what is going to enable us to know God. What is going to enable us to unite us to God? And so the answers of the saints has always been, well, uh, mental prayer. I mean, giving your, your mind and your heart to God during your lifetime, taking time of your life to do that. Now, um, we at the Vexilloregius group, the Catholic Men for Christ the King, have been reading Dom Chotard's The Soul of the Apostolate, and Domsar Schottard is continually and stressing and stressing and stressing the same point over and over again <coughs> that any effective 
practice, any effective action we're going to take for Christ has to be rooted in mental prayer. And has to start with that. And he insists on it. And it's almost as though as you're reading the book, you think, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But we don't really get it. We don't really see the importance of it. Not that much. Not like the saints saw it. The saints actually saw the importance on it. They saw the necessity of, of insisting on it. Why? Because they saw success and they saw failure. The saints saw success and they saw failure and they saw what other people did. They saw what uh, started as zeal and good intentions and ended miserably in disaster. They saw what started very humbly and very simply, and they saw it grow into something very, very successful, almost uh, spectacularly successful. And they saw the difference, a pattern there, and they saw that those who achieved great success and accomplishing wonderful things for our Lord in this world all, all based their uh, activity on a very deep, powerful interior life, the centerpiece of which was mental prayer. They saw that this was the powerhouse. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting about the heart again. You know, I mentioned the heart being so central. Um, the heart actually has its own power supply. It's, it, I don't know how to put it, but if you were to uh, actually remove somebody's heart, it would keep beating. It would keep regulating itself, and it would keep generating. It would keep generating the electrical pulse to beat. It would beat in your hands. the The heart itself is made to go on. It's it's uh, very peculiar, you know. And uh, it's got not only the electrical impulse built into it it actually has the pacing built into it, too. It has everything to do with the oxygen supply, and the heart will continue to beat as long as it has the oxygen to feed it. And, and then it will slowly die. Well, it's almost like the mental prayer is like that pulse within the heart. It's like that, that pulse of electricity in the heart that enables it to beat and beat and beat. And just to keep going. Um, so it is recommended that every single one of us, regardless of what his vocation is or what his occupation may be, spend at least 15 minutes every day, every morning, ideally, devoted to mental prayer. At least 15 minutes every morning, ideally, to start the day in mental prayer. They recommend starting the morning with that because that's when your mind is clear of all the events of the day. If you try to take 15 minutes later on in the day, you've got a lot of things happening, a lot of chatter going on in your mind, a lot of occupations and, and cares and so on well up in your mind. You try to do that at the end of the day and you get all the events of the day in your mind. It makes it very difficult. But if you uh, even get up 15 minutes early and just have a little bit of a garden you make for yourself where you can go and lock yourself in the closet if you have to, um, that's about 15 minutes of your life. They say that that would make an enormous difference. Now you think about that. Think about advertisements. Okay, here you are. You, you know, you, you, um, you're hearing the, the, the sales pitch, okay? Just 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, you can lose uh, 10 pounds in a week. Lose 10 pounds in a week, 15 minutes a day. That's all you got to do. 
And it's even effortless. How easy it is, right? Well, how many people do you think would bite on that? Well, a lot of people do. You know, oh, make the wrinkles go away. 15 minutes a day, use our cream, rub it into your wrinkles. My goodness, at the end of the month, you'll look like you, were, you lost 40, not 40 pounds, you'll look like you lost 40 years. Boy, you ever hear these sales pitch? You ever hear these things? They're out there, aren't they? Do they work? Oh, yeah. People buy that stuff. Why? Because everybody wants the wrinkles to go away, and they want the extra pounds to go away. And, hey, 15 minutes a day? Man, I could do for 15 minutes a day? Wow. That's a, a pretty big reward to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds in a month. How much better my life would be. And this is what you hear. It changed my life. It changed my life. Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> Use our toothbrush. It'll change your life. You know? Well, here we are. We have the saints telling us 15 minutes a day. It'll change your life. You know what? They're right. They're right. Their testimonials are reliable. They know exactly what they're talking about. And uh, you know, you hear all that, uh, the barking of the, uh, the sideshow guys at the carnival about this greatest thing you ever saw in your life. You know, just put down your two bits and, uh, and people fall for it all the time. But, uh, you know, this is real. This is real here. People buy into that other stuff all the time. But this you can count on. If you were to give 15 minutes of your day to this early in the morning, you do something more wonderful than losing 10 pounds in a month or 40 years of wrinkles. You will uh, actually do something to the life of the soul. You know? And that really does change your life. St. Alphonsus Liguori said, It is morally impossible for him who neglects meditation to live without sin. It's quite a statement. Morally impossible. In other words, it would require some special supernatural grace to make it possible. For one who neglects meditation to live without sin, to live in the state of sanctifying grace. And uh, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross both agreed with that. St. Teresa of Avila said, he who neglects mental prayer needs not a devil to carry him to hell, but he brings himself there with his own hands. Imagine carrying your own soul into hell. It's kind of a sad thought. But this is what she's describing. Hey, you think of St. Teresa of Avila? She knows what she's talking about. She had a revelation. God showed her her place in hell if she were to go there. She knew what she was looking at. She knew what she was facing. And St. John of the Cross says, without the aid of mental prayer, the soul cannot triumph over the forces of the demon. So if you want to triumph over the forces of the demon, you know where to turn. 15 minutes a day. So now the advertisement is not lose the pounds and lose the wrinkles. Now the point is you can defeat the powers of hell by 15 minutes a day. That's quite an endorsement, you know, especially from people like that. So what do they recommend? Well, I'm going to go through this. I actually have a number of uh, different ideas to present to you, and they all kind of come back. They all converge about the same ideas just to reinforce the idea of what do we do? How do we do this mental prayer? Well, <clears throat> this one source says every morning awake 15 minutes earlier if you have to. 
to have that time. Even if you have to make a point of going into, going into bed at 15 minutes ahead of time. And they say spend 15 minutes in solitude with our Lord. This can be done in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, if you have access to our Lord in the church. Even stopping by the church on your way to work. Those were the days, right? When there were so many churches between your home and your work that you could pick any one of them to go into. Or you can do it in a quiet place in your own home, if there is a quiet place in your own home. If there isn't a quiet place in your own home, you need to move out and find a place that has a peace and quiet. But you need to carve out a place, even if you have to put in a shed in the, back, in the backyard, you need to find a garden somewhere that you can go to, kind of a refuge, a haven. Even if it's a refugium peccatorum, that's what you need, a refuge of sinners. Make one for yourself. And it says, as you begin, recall that wherever you are, God is present there. So the first thing they say is, make yourself aware of the presence of God. They say he is near to you and with you and is pleased that you are actually offering this time of your life to him, that you're offering your attention and hopefully your affection to him. He's very pleased with that, the fact that you're offering this and you are mindful of him. Humble yourself before him. Praise him for your redemption achieved through the incarnation, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. And then, they say, prayerfully read a spiritual text. Uh, this gets down to the Lexio Divina, which I shall be talking about in a few minutes here, hopefully very few minutes. Um, read, a, read a spiritual text, not something long, but something very, very meaty, preferably something from the gospel. Read a statement of our Lord from the gospels. You don't have to read the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount. Actually, just a matter of two verses, or of one verse. You can read just one verse. There's plenty to meditate on there. You can read from the Gospels, ideally, or from St. Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life. We have copies there. From uh, Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, The Divine Office of the Day, readings from the liturgy. You can even read from the, uh, the Mass of the Day, read from the Epistle, read from the Gospel, of the day, if you're looking for some source for these things. And they tell you, don't just read, though. Don't just read, and don't even just read for understanding, in the sense that you're reading um, them from a theological point of view. When you read these things, for example, a statement of our Lord, for example, uh, the statement, um, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's sufficient right there. That's plenty there to meditate on. So you're reading that, and you're not trying to look upon it as St. Thomas Aquinas writing the Summa Theologica. You are reading that with a different view, from a different aspect, and that is the moral aspect of what it means for you what our Lord meant for you in saying these words. What does he want you to know? What does he want you to understand? What's in his mind? That's what you want to know. You want to know what is in our Lord's mind when he said these words. And that's why you have to ask the Holy Ghost for guidance, because he's the one who actually can tell you. He knows very well what was in our Lord's mind. 
not only can he tell you what's in our Lord's mind when he said those words long ago, but he can tell you exactly what's in our Lord's mind for you right now. And so it's a matter of meditating on the text. It's not a matter of uh, a hermeneutic or conducting some kind of theological exercise. It's a matter of meditation. It's a matter of enlightenment from God. As you read this text, ask to understand it, ask to enter into it, ask it to enter into you. Pray the text. Pray the text of our Lord's words. Go slow. Pause. No rush. Apply the text to your own life. Dialogue, they say, converse with God. Converse with our Lord regarding the meaning of the text. Ask him to explain it to you. You know, time and time again, our Lord would say things that were obscure to the apostles. And time and time again, they'd ask him to explain, and he did. He explained to them. Why can't you? You think our Lord would not explain to you? He will. If you will listen, he'll tell you. So after reading this little snippet of text from, let's say, the Gospels, and taking the few moments to just uh, think about that, turn it over in your mind, examine it carefully as you would some kind of a gemstone that you were holding in your hand, then what you need to do is uh, offer acts of love to our Lord. This is the effective part. This is what it's all driving to. This is what it's really all about. And that is an act of love for God. We offer thanksgiving and we offer, we humble ourselves before God. We make an act of adoration of his excellence. But all of that should be kind of couched in love for him. And then we make an act of petition for a certain grace from God. We ask for the growth of a certain virtue, let's say, for example. Make a concrete resolution, a resolution to do what is good, try to improve ourselves, grow in virtue, in honor of God, to praise him, to glorify him. And finally, they say, the, the end of the meditation should be actually a word of thanks to God, a word of appreciation to him, thanking him for the graces and the blessings of the meditation itself. Now, this is a basic structure that you can go to by. There are those who give other structures too. Some of them are so elaborate, in fact, that the, the very method itself can become uh, very arduous and even somewhat discouraging. I've seen some lay down methods that are so particular about every single thought that you're supposed to think and the order in which you're supposed to think it that I think beginners get scared off and think this is impossible. I have to get a PhD to even learn how to begin. And uh, actually some uh, gentleman told me that he uh, actually was reading these methods wanting to start mental prayer and he found the methods kind of confusing and distracting in their own right. So he just undertook mental prayer and he said only after he got so far in the practice of mental prayer did he go back and actually appreciate the value of the instruction and the methods. But the odd thing is, the instruction of the method was supposed to be for a beginner, and the beginner didn't get anything out of it until he had actually gone beyond beginner life stage, and then he came back and he said, now it makes sense. So I wouldn't let the method be the problem, okay? And it certainly should not stop you. Simplicity is the key to mental prayer. Okay, because uh, actually you're not building the Tower of Babel to assault heaven. 
you're asking God to reach down from heaven and to raise you up. You're not building your own tower. So if you create this elaborate method <clears throat> that no mortal can really follow successfully or uh, without getting discouraged, you're wasting your time, more worse than wasting your time. So the important thing is a mental prayer, not how you got there. St. Alphonsus Liguori has his own method of mental prayer. St. Alphonsus talks about a preparation. He says we have a preparation of mental prayer, and he actually gives the words, My God, I believe that you are, thou art here present, and I adore thee with all my heart. I deserve at this moment to be burning in hell for my sins. Oh my God, I'm sorry for having offended thee. Pardon me. Eternal Father, grant me light in this meditation that I may profit by it. This is what he said in his meditation. That was his preparation. Notice it agrees with the other method that I just mentioned to you. The start, put yourself in the presence of God. Be aware of God. And that you are addressing him. Having an audience with him as... The priest says in the catechism of mental prayer, having an interview with him, whatever you want to do, however you want to look at it, the fact is you are putting yourself in the presence of God. That's where you start. That's when it all starts. And then uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori says, Pray Hail Mary to the Mother of God, and a glory be to the Father, in honor of St. Joseph, uh, your guardian angel and holy patron. St. Alphonsus Liguori was a little bit elaborate. Did he start this way himself? Maybe not. But maybe this is the method he developed over time. So maybe this isn't what he would tell you to do as a beginner. I don't know. But he says, you start with the preparation. Then you read the meditation. And again, now they're recommending something from sacred scripture. The Lexio Divina. It all seems to come back to that. The fuel you use to get this rocket ship off the ground. And, you know, rocket ships weigh tons and tons and hundreds of tons. Well, you're talking about raising your heart to God. You know, hearts can be awfully heavy. You might know that from experience. Hearts can be really heavy. They need some serious fuel to get off the ground. That's why they recommend reading the sacred scriptures as the fuel. That is, you need something to burn. And so the meditation should be about something from sacred scripture that's divine wisdom there. So that's what St. Alphonsus did, too. He says, go to sacred scripture for your meditation, he says. He says, uh, while reading, we should stop at those passages in which the soul finds it is receiving nourishment. And we should try to produce acts of humility, of thanksgiving, especially of contrition and love, of resignation and self-offering. We should say, O oh Lord, dispose of me as you please. Help me to know all that you require of me. I wish to please thee in all things. We should especially apply ourselves to making petitions and asking God to grant us holy perseverance, his love, light, and strength that we mostly need in order to do his holy will and to pray always. Now again, St. Alphonsus Liguori is probably telling you what he himself did in his meditations. But he would also tell you, this works for me, and I think the general outlines will work for you. But he would also tell you, you have to do this yourself. This is for yourself, and God might have other plans for you. You might other things find other things in the particulars. You might other things find other things more helpful. The third step, he says, is the conclusion. And he says, we make the resolution now to avoid some particular sin into which we fall the most often. We should finish by saying, Our Father and Hail Mary, 
And never forget, in meditation, to recommend to God the souls in purgatory and all poor sinners. So he, he covers a lot of ground here. <clears throat> Who he invokes <clears throat> in, the, in the preparation, what he thinks in the, uh, in the conclusion. <clears throat> it probably came very naturally and very automatically to him. But he wouldn't want you to be reading this and say, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? Oh, yeah, now it's time for the Our Father. That's, that's, that's going to be a distraction. That's not actually carrying it out. Notice he says, pray the Hail Mary, pray the Glory Be, pray the Our Father, pray the Hail Mary again at the end. Again, these are formula prayers that you can pray. But the actual meditation is not that. The actual meditation is a spontaneous prayer of your own heart and soul. Enlightened by God. So there you have the preparation, the meditation, and the conclusion, St. Alphonsus Liguori. Um, I am kind of boiling this down somewhat and uh, have quite a bit that I could read to you, but these are things you're going to find out for yourself as well. can't read everything to you. I just want you to get the idea so you can actually start putting it into practice. Um, someone here, uh, a Father Rickeluk, um, has pointed out in his spiritual works, Ten ways of conversing with God when, after a sincere attempt, one finds it morally impossible to make a set meditation on a subject prepared the evening before. Now, this has to do with the question of how you prepare for meditation. Okay? They, they recommend that you actually choose the subject of your meditation the, the day before. Okay, take it, let, let's take this as a, uh, a day in the life of Okay, um, during the day, I really lose my temper on the road. Somebody cuts me off, and I really let them have it. Fish shaking, and I'm really mad. And maybe even swerve uh, around them in order to make a point that nobody disrespects me this way. And then afterward, I think, oh, you fool. What have you done? You did it again. What's the matter with you? Why can't you get over that? <laughs> you know? And you think all kinds of things about how dangerous it was, how stupid it was, what a terrible example it was. And it's so simple. Why can't, why is this such a big deal to me that I can't tolerate somebody cutting, cutting in front of me in line? Uh, when our Lord, you know, if I, if I had my place, I'd, I'd be in line with a cross on my back marching to Calvary. And I'm not. Why, don't I, why am I not in that line? But I can't see anybody else getting in front of me in any other line. So I, I repent of that. So I think, you know, I'm going to have to meditate on this. I'm going to have to get serious about getting that temper of mind under control. Okay? So I made that decision. That's going to be the meditation for the next day. So that night, that night before I turn in, I think, well, okay, my subject is going to be my meditation on patience. And I know what I'm going to think about. I'm going to think about the patience of our Lord. So I'm going to meditate on his patience and his passion. Or maybe I will say, well, I'm also going to meditate on his patience in being surrounded by all these people who are grabbing at him and crying out to him all the time and interrupting him, <laughs> disrupting his life. I'm going to meditate on his patience in dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A lot of ground. I'm thinking of this the night before as to kind of prepare the ground. It's sort of like, okay, tomorrow morning, I'm getting up early. I'm going to lay out the, the, the suit. I'm going to lay out the pants and the shirt. And I'm going to lay these things out and have them all ready to go. 
And that's fine, okay? So the next day, I get up, I'm gonna do my meditation. I'm all prepared, and I kneel down, I go to my little garden, and I um, start, I ask our Lord for guidance, I put myself in his, in his presence, um, intellectually, volitionally, I put myself in his presence emotionally, uh, imaginatively, I put myself in the presence of God in every way. And um, then I ask him to please help me. I ask the Holy Ghost to enlighten me, please, so that I can meditate effectively on this, this uh, most important subject of patience. And I look at it in the, in the, uh, through the eyes of our Lord, okay? And if I have a text I can read from the Gospels, let's say a passage from the Passion of our Lord, so much the better. So I read that. And I stop, and I, I, I give God a chance to get a word in edgewise. I read that, and I ponder that. And I ponder that, I want the Holy Ghost to actually come as my teacher, and I want him to help me to ponder it by directing my thoughts, to enabling me to see things perhaps that I never saw before, understand things I never understood before, appreciate things I never appreciated before, enter into the mind of Christ. And um, so, I mean, all of that in 15 minutes, that's not bad. Um, that's a lot, that's a tall order, you know. And I might even have to set an alarm clock to, to break me out of my, my reverie or at least have me come down from the ceiling where I've, I've ascended up, I've, I've levitated up there. And I, I come down to earth and I thank God uh, for whatever benefit and enlightenment he's given me, whatever resolve I can make now to go forward. I actually have a practical plan now, what I'm going to deal with, what I'm going to do when things like this happen again, because happen again, they will. I know they will happen again. And I, I say, okay, now I'm going to handle it a different way. God has shown me a better way to handle this. I'm going to actually take different steps. So there are very practical consequences to this. So it's almost as though I've written a script for myself as to what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow the script as to what I choose to do under the influence of grace, rather than what I let my my irascible appetite take over when I become a maniac in, in anger. So, but the script is written by the Holy Ghost and me jointly, and that's what I'm going to follow. Then you have a fighting chance, you know, to actually get control, maintain that control, and actually change things really for the better. So that's very, very important that uh, we do that. Now there's there's a text from St. Teresa of Avila, which I want to read because I find it to be very helpful. I thought it, I thought it was very interesting about mental prayer because um, she is actually helping us to go beyond the meditation phase, even to the contemplation phase, which is really ultimately where we want to go. So I'll tell you what, tomorrow I'll, I'll read that to you. That'll be our last conference. I'll read what she has to say about that. I think it applies to every one of us because in its simplicity, it, it is something accessible to every single one of us. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila speaks on mental prayer. So that's what we'll talk about tomorrow. We have benediction about 10 minutes, so let's get ready for that.